Hi, my name is Kathy Harrelson, and I am honored to get to be here today to talk about Psalm chapter 7. This summer, a friend of mine was nearing the end of a two-year journey. She and some other advocates had been fighting for the care of a special needs child. And over the course of that two years, there had been many conversations, negotiations, mediations even, and finally it had reached the court system. And we had been waiting for a court date, and it seemed like every time there had been something scheduled, the other side would stall or delay. There had even been some incredibly, incredibly egregious, false accusations that had been levied. And so as the date approached in July, she and I kind of kept wondering, bracing ourselves, what is it that's going to happen this time? And then a couple of days before the date that the judge was supposed to give the verdict, her lawyer, the lawyer for that team said, I think we're actually going to go to court this time. And immediately my concerns changed. They shifted to, is the judge going to have all the information he needs? He's never met this child. Is he going to know everything he needs to know? And number two, even if he has all the information, is he going to do what's right? My guess is that you have been in some kind of similar situation, maybe not in a court, but certainly in life, be it with family, at work, with friends, in your neighborhood. Somewhere, you know you've been being evaluated, and you wonder, do the people involved have all the information? And if they do, are they going to do the right thing? And to be honest, sometimes they don't. We all are and have been treated unjustly at times. When we find ourselves there, how do we respond? What is it we should do? And is there a place of safety or refuge that we can go? Those are questions we are going to see answered in Psalm chapter 7. I'm going to start reading with the description underneath the title and then verses 1 and 2. A Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. We meet David in a place of great desperation, of great suffering, and of great pain. And as I look at that description, there are a couple things that jump out to me. One is the word shigayan. Unfortunately, that word is not used very often in scriptures, and commentators aren't quite sure the emphasis that David is going for. But there is a word in that description that we are all very familiar with, and that is the word words. What is at the root of the pain and the difficulty that David is experiencing? It's words. Last week when we were studying Psalm 27 verse 12 jumped out to me because it talked about how false accusations have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Words can lead to violence. Read also on your verse sheet in James chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. And we're going to see the power that words can have. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The pain in David's life starts with words, and my guess is that's something that you can relate to. I know there have been words spoken to or about me, and at times I've replayed them in my mind, and they've caused me pain. I'm also ashamed to admit, but sometimes I'm the one that has spoken words, and I have seen in the body language of the response that I have hurt someone else with my words. We've seen careless, angry, unkind words rip apart relationships, rip apart families. We've seen gossip and slander destroy reputations, prevent opportunities. We've seen false accusations attributing motives cause great, great pain. And it is words that are at the root of what is causing this pain that are at the root of this injustice. This is where it started. Spoken and written words can lead to gut-wrenching suffering and they can seriously, seriously wound others. How does David respond? Well, we see a godly response here. He rushes to God for safety and for refuge and he begs, he begs God for help. Look at the desperation his soul torn apart, rendered in pieces. These words and these injustice have led to great pain, and yet he rushes to God and he begs, he begs for help. Save me and deliver me. And we're gonna see this is all the result of injustice against David. To be honest, you're at a Bible study. It's probably not surprising that at some point, I am gonna suggest to you that you should talk to God about your pain. That's probably not surprising, but to be honest, I think it's much harder to do than we want to admit when we've been treated unjustly because I want to attack back or I want to call a friend or I want to rush to a colleague and I want to gossip and slander. So it may seem simple, but I think it's harder to do than we want to admit that we need to run to God when we've been treated unjustly. I really respect how David did that and we're gonna see more of his character in verses three to five. Read with me, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. To be honest, commentators were really split over exactly how to look at those three verses, but really they were all pointing to the same thing, just looking at it a different way. Some of the commentators said that David is actually asking the Lord, have I done something wrong here? Was I a part of creating this problem? And to be honest, that is a great question for us to ask. We are not perfect. We may find ourselves in a place of injustice and we need to go to God and say, hey, Am I a part of the problem? Did I help create this? Did I do something wrong? Sometimes the answer is yes. Thankfully, there's a solution for that. We can ask God for forgiveness. We can ask the other person for forgiveness and we can work toward reconciliation. Some of the other commentators indicated that this is really just David in a very poetic way, expressing 
that he is innocent and that he hasn't done something wrong. Either way we look at it though, the way he communicates is incredibly humble. Even while he's being treated unjustly, David walks with humility and he admits his own imperfection. As we watch how he expressed it, he talked about wrong in his hands, repaying a friend with evil, indicating he's not always perfect, even though in this instance, he didn't do anything wrong. Again, it's real easy to say, you should be humble when you're treated unjustly, but that is way harder to do than we wanna admit. My pride and my anger wanna jump in and begin to sinfully defend myself. So I really, really respect David for the humility with which he approaches this. And I even really respect the fact that he's not just mad that someone sinned against him. He's not just upset at the consequences. He hates all sin and wrongdoing. He even hates his own. He's holding himself to the same standard that he is holding the individuals who have harmed him. And I really respect that. While we don't know the exact instance that David is talking about in these verses, we do know from scripture some other ways that David responded to injustice. He definitely didn't always respond perfectly. David was not perfect, but we do see some really great examples of him responding well. Shimei in 2 Samuel speaks words of curse about David, attacks him, and yet we see David not sinning and responding with great self-control. One of the things that I most respect about David's life, I've said it before, I will probably say it again, the way he responded to Saul always really impressed me. Saul would attack David, try to murder him, chase him, and yet David responded so well, so frequently to those attacks. And I think it is particularly hard to respond well to injustice when it keeps happening over and over and over again, especially by the same person or in the same situation. We have a really great example of someone else who responded really well to injustice. You're gonna see on your verse sheet, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did what was right in injustice. In this Psalm, David responds well to injustice. And one of the things that most impressed me about my friend and her advocates as they walked through this two-year process was the other side kept not playing fair. They didn't do what was right. And yet my friends kept over the course of time, continuing and continuing to do the right thing. And even at times were more than just just, they were kind and gracious when they could be. That is important for us and yet hard. When we experience injustice, we should come to God humbly, knowing we're not perfect. We are not perfect. And yet we should come boldly desperately asking for God's help because I think it's really hard to walk through and it's hard to walk through well. 
Let me ask this question. Why? Why is going to God the answer? I mean, I know you're in church, so maybe that's supposed to be the answer, but, but why? And how do we find the power to do that? We get a nod to that at the end of those verses that I read to you about Jesus in 1 Peter. Look at what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was living for a different judge. In this specific instance, we see in Psalm 7, David do the same thing. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. We are going to meet a judge who is very different than an earthly judge. We're going to watch David interact with this judge and see how he responds based on not an earthly judge, but a perfect, saving, righteous judge. Look with verses 6 and 7 with me. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. God passionately protects his godly children. God does not like injustice. And when we read words like anger, sometimes we think that that means it's sinful or that it's not self-controlled. And to be honest, sometimes it's not. But anger can be righteous and self-controlled, and with God, it always is. God does not like injustice against you. I know perhaps you have thought or felt that way as you've watched a child or someone vulnerable or disadvantaged be treated wrongly. You have that sense rise up you, that passion of this is not right, And that oftentimes prompts us to act because we want to protect. That's what we see here in this psalm. Look at what David asks of God. He says, arise, lift yourself up, and awake. He boldly asks God to act. God passionately protects his children. That is the judge that he is. You should boldly ask God to act on your behalf when you are treated unjustly. Let's keep reading in verses eight and nine. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Remember how I was concerned that that earthly judge wouldn't have all the information that he needs? That is never the case with our heavenly judge. He knows the integrity and the righteousness that is in David, and it says he tests the minds and the hearts. You should never have to wonder if God knows and sees every person and everything involved. This is the judge he is. He knows everything. He clearly sees the truth. He's perfectly evaluating every person involved. You can expect that God, the judge, is accurately assessing every single thing that is happening. He is very different than an earthly judge. He always has all of the information. Read with me verses 10 and 11. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. 
God is a righteous judge. David was righteous, but nothing like the righteousness of God. There are earthly judges and even good ones, but nothing like God the judge. God the judge, he is the righteous of the righteous. He is the judge of the judges. This God is righteous judge is essential, and in my opinion, the passage hinges on this, and it's a massive theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. I could have put half of the Old Testament on your verse sheet. I didn't. I selected one verse, or two verses. Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8 says this, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Think with me in the Old Testament. God is regularly assessing the people, and when he sees righteousness, there's blessing. And when he judges sin, there are consequences. In fact, with the nation of Israel, for years they kept disobeying God. God kept saying, here's my standard, please do what I've asked. They continue to not do it, and then what happens? God, the righteous judge, eventually has to punish sin. He has to bring consequences. In fact, multiple of the books of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, are centered around God as judge. God is telling the nation of Israel, please don't do this or I'm gonna have to judge you. Please repent. Or you've done this, I told you I had to judge you. Or I had to judge you, I'm going to bring you back. But this is why you're here. God as judge is a massive theme in the scriptures. We see in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, at the end of time, Jesus is going to return, and guess what? We're going to have judgment. I think actually one of the key places that we see the judgment and justice of God is a place we often miss it. Because we think about the cross of Jesus Christ as a place of mercy and grace as it is, we miss the fact that it is a place of God as judge rightly and justly punishing sin. Here's the problem. I'm a sinner. Because God is a good, righteous judge, he has to punish sin. That means I would be separated from God forever in hell. God is a righteous judge. He has to punish my sin. But he sends Jesus, and Jesus takes my sin. It's credited, imputed, given to Jesus, And there is punishment on Jesus. The righteous judge rightly punishes sin. That's what had to happen. Well, it didn't have to happen. I could have taken it, but thankfully Jesus took it. Then Jesus credits, gives back to me his righteousness. Imputes it back to me. Now, that doesn't mean I deserve it. But when God gives me heaven, it's a just right thing to do because Jesus has given me his righteousness. The cross is about mercy and grace because it's not deserved, but it is a place that God the judge and his justice is front and center. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I get that just by faith, just by believing in Jesus. The cross is a place of mercy, but it is a place of justice. So if God is going to send his son so that God the judge can rightly punish sin, is there any real doubt 
that any sin or injustice committed against you is not going to eventually be judged. It absolutely will. You can 100% bank on it. His timing may look different than yours, thankfully. God doesn't zap me the moment I sin. He doesn't do that for other people either. So it may not look exactly like you want it to. Nor am I saying that you shouldn't stand up or that that means you have to be taken advantage of all the time. Definitely not. Does that mean we should fight for justice for people? Absolutely. In the Old Testament, one of the concerns God had with the nation of Israel was they hadn't acted justly and they weren't defending those who'd been treated unjustly. We absolutely should stand up for other people and fight for justice, but we do it in a godly way, never sinning, only doing what God directs and tells us to do, trusting that we can always hide behind that shield and trust this judge. He is always, always right. We're going to read this um, next section, and we are going to be able to apply it to our lives, and I want you to look at it in two separate ways. The first way I want you to read it is as a warning. Sometimes I think warnings get a bad rap. I think warnings are great and very loving and very helpful. We're constantly warned. Please do not click on a link in your email from someone you don't know. Why are we told that? Bad things will likely happen if you do. Please don't play with knives. Why are we warned that? Something bad is going to happen. I think warnings are very helpful. So I want us to first read this next passage as a warning, and then we'll look at it through a different lens. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Does anyone feel warned? Do we have your attention? Be warned. Verse 14, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Be warned when I think it's just a little sin. It's not that bad. Be warned. Things that are conceived eventually do what? You're then pregnant and then what happens? You give birth. Don't be thinking it's not that big of a deal. Be warned. Don't start. Move to verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Do not start down the path of evil. Do not do it. Here's the thing. Sometimes we do. And thankfully, I really like verse 12 because it provides some hope for me. It says, if a man does not repent, which means I can repent, whether I am at the conception, whether I am at pregnancy, whether I'm almost getting ready to give birth, turn around. You can. God can help you and he will forgive. Look at Acts 3, 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God provides hope for sinners, but eventually dramatic consequences will come. Repent quickly, regardless of where you are in the process. Please turn back. 
we've applied this passage from the lens of a warning, and so I want to look at it from a different perspective as well. In this specific passage, David is the just one being treated wickedly. If you're being treated unjustly, and you just read that section of scripture, you should be really encouraged because God is going to take care of, even if you don't see it at the moment, even if you never see it, God is absolutely going to take care of the injustice against you. You can obey him and you can let him distribute justice. He is a righteous judge, it will happen. I remember there was a time in my life that this really stuck out to me. I had been making a large purchase, and to be honest, the person working with me had not treated me well, and I knew that. It's not like I'd been totally taken advantage of. In appropriate ways, I had stood up for myself, but we reached the end, and I realized this is just not right. But to be honest, I'd done about everything I could do without sinning, and God graciously reminded me, he said, Kathy, that man has sinned against you. He's treated you unjustly, but one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to pay for that sin eternally in hell, along with all his other sins. That injustice will be satisfied. Or, like you, Kathy, he's going to believe in Jesus. And that means Jesus took the punishment and justice fully for what was done to you. The injustice done to me would be satisfied. I didn't have to worry about it. I had done what I could do. And it made my ideas for revenge seem a little bit lame. <laughs> so I thought, I'm just gonna obey God. I'm gonna let him distribute justice. I've done what I could do and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just leave that one. Choose your path. Choose how you live your life based on the only judge who really matters. There's only one judge that matters. Choose your path. Ask him for help. He passionately, passionately protects his children. Know that God knows every detail of what's going on. Expect God to fully assess the situation and to handle it perfectly. Hide behind God's shield, regardless of what you do. Hide behind his shield and trust this judge. He's always going to do what's right in the right timing and in the right way. Obey him and let him be the one who distributes justice. There are a thousand ways that God being righteous judge can and should impact our lives. And so a few weeks ago, because I'd been studying this and became really passionate about God as righteous judge, I thought, I need to see what God wants to teach me about it. I had no intention of telling anyone whatever this prayer time was going to look like. I just thought, I'm a believer. I love the Bible. I've been studying this. I need to apply it to my own life. I need to talk to God about this. And to be honest, I kind of braced myself because I assumed that rightfully so, God the judge was going to point out 847 things that I was doing wrong, and he was going to lovingly and kindly correct me. He would have been totally right to do so. So I braced myself. I'm like, all right, God's gracious. I'm going to do this. And almost immediately as I turned to the Lord, I took a deep breath and I was relieved. And I was like, what is happening? I have clearly misunderstood what's happening here. And that evening and over the course of the next few days, let me tell you how God showed the kind of righteous judge he is and how following his path is better. He reminded me, he said, Kath, 
you spend a lot of time being evaluated by other things and other people, and you try to please all of them. Someone doesn't like your personality. They don't like what you wear. They don't like how you vacation. They don't like how you spend your money. Someone tells you where a kid needs to go to school. Everyone is evaluating you all the time. And it was so freeing as God said, I'm one judge. You don't have to please a thousand. I'm one. And my standard never changes. And all these judges out here are kind of regularly changing their standard. Their intentions for me are not always good. And God's intention for me as judge is always good. And this one was particularly meaningful for me as a people pleaser. God reminded me that there are times I'm not going to keep his standard. But I have a hope. I can ask for his forgiveness and be forgiven and be at peace. And often with all these other judges, I feel like it doesn't matter what I do. I can never meet the standard, so I can never be at peace. And it was very refreshing to realize the only judge who matters has provided a way for me to be at peace. And he's not just a judge. He's a judge who wants me to succeed and has given me what I need to meet the things that he has asked me to do. And that is not necessarily the case for the other judges and evaluators that I try to please. And I will tell you that thinking about God as judge and my only judge has been one of the most freeing truths of the past year to me. Choose to live your life for the only judge who really matters. We've met David as a humble sufferer. We've watched him engage with a righteous judge. And we're going to see some confident worship Look with me at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Most High. After his interactions with God, David emerges with confidence and with worship. Look at that. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. And it's not based on any circumstances changing. He gives God praise and thanks. Why? due to God's righteousness. To our knowledge, David's circumstances haven't changed yet. Going to and interacting with a righteous judge can genuinely change you, can genuinely give you peace and hope. But I also want to paint a realistic picture that there's a repetition and a battle for that. You do realize David wrote more than one psalm, right? (laughs) Which means he wrestled more than once And went to God more than once to fight to live in the confident worship, right? That's what we do. I at least do. You go more than once and you repeat this process. It's a battle, but one where we can experience who God is. I told you about my friend with the court decision. In July, there was a day in Tuesday, on a Tuesday, that they were supposed to get the verdict. And... Honestly, I was filled with a lot of angst. I didn't know which way it was going to go. I was really nervous. I didn't really tell her how nervous I was. I may send her this link. She did give me permission to share what I'm sharing. I stayed within the bounds of what she was comfortable with and glad for me to do so. And I was filled with angst because I didn't know what the judge was going to do. He was getting information from two sides. He'd never met the child. And there was a key piece of evidence that because of the rules of the court, he wasn't going to get 
And I thought, I don't know where this is going to go. And I was in my kitchen one day begging for God to be just. And I thought, what am I going to cling to? And what am I, how am I going to be a good friend? What do I encourage her to cling to? So out of the blue, I picked up my phone. She didn't know what I was thinking or doing. And I started this text to her. No preamble. Here's what I texted her. I said, things that will be true on Wednesday, colon. Something was going to happen on Tuesday, and I didn't know what it was. But I needed to know what was going to be true on Wednesday. And I sent her 10 things. I won't share all of them, but I'll share you some of what I sent her. I said, you and the other advocates will sleep with a clear conscience. They had done what was right. I said, you and the other advocates will continue to do the right thing, regardless of what anyone else does. I knew that was their heart, and I knew I wanted to encourage them to do so. I said, this child's story will not be over. It will continue regardless of what an earthly judge says. Fourthly, I said this, God is just, and no earthly court can stop his justice. God will be on the throne and at work. And the last thing I wrote her was this. I said, Tuesday's a big day, but it's just a day. God is eternal. She told me she wasn't allowed to take um, a phone with the text into court, but she wanted the truth of God, and so she wrote those in a journal and took her in with her. And on Monday before Tuesday, she texts me this. She says, yesterday at church, the pastor preached from Revelation 22. At one point, he was referencing there being no night in heaven. His biggest point was talking about the sovereignty and eternality of God. Tuesday, we'll have a sunrise and a sunset, but God is eternal. There is no night in his holy city. There is no wickedness there. There is no injustice there. She found a way to battle and rest in the righteousness of God. And it is a beautiful thing. Righteousness is so beautiful. The righteous God is so beautiful and worth being celebrated. That's what we see David do here. You know, sometimes we get an earthly verdict that goes our way, and sometimes we don't. We've established God is going to bring justice. On this specific Tuesday, there was justice done. In fact, she called me afterwards, and she said, it's the most merciful justice I've ever seen. God was just, but in every way, he could be merciful to all the parties involved. He was. So I titled this lesson after that, The Merciful justice of God. Last week in Psalm 27, we were encouraged to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. May I encourage you this week to gaze upon the beauty of a righteous judge. Love righteousness. It's really beautiful. Righteousness is so beautiful, and even more so, there is a righteous God God who is worthy of being gazed upon and celebrated and is the most freeing, full of light judge you will ever, ever meet. We meet David as a humble sufferer. He goes to a saving, righteous judge, and we see him as a confident worshiper. I think he was still suffering even as he was a confident worshiper, so we can suffer and be confident in our worship at the same time. I'll leave with you the example and encouragement of Jesus. How do we do this? Why do we do this? Where's the power come from? Continue 
continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. God is a righteous judge. He can't not judge justly. You can bank on it. He is a righteous judge now, and he always will be. Continue, continue moment, day after day, to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Pray with me. Righteous judge, we praise you. You are full of light and knowledge and righteousness in every way. I pray that you would enable each one of us to continue to entrust ourselves to you because that is hard to do. There are some listening right now who are currently experiencing significant injustice. We ask that you and your anger and your love would defend, protect, awake, arise, lift up on their behalf. Give all of us the ability to keep doing what is right and honorable, regardless of how we are treated. We praise you and celebrate and thank you, righteous judge, because of your righteousness. We gaze upon your beauty and look forward to the day when there is no light, no, excuse me, when there is no darkness, there is no injustice, and there is only light in your holy city. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Kathy.